So chapter 4, Nehemiah, here we go. Uh, so if you haven't been journeying with us over these past few weeks, let me just give you a little bit of context. So Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king in Susa in Persia, King Artaxerxes, and one of the guys comes all the way from Judah to see him, and he says, how are things back at home? And the response he has is this, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Perhaps wasn't what he wanted to hear. Nehemiah weeps and he prays and he seeks God about his role and what he should do and what is God's purpose. His prayer is rooted in compassionate identification with his people back in Jerusalem. And out of that prayer comes a God-given vision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem to restore the identity of the people of God and their purpose And so Nehemiah prays and he goes to see the king and he prays for the favor of the king upon him. And he receives that favor from the king and he returns to Jerusalem with the support of King Artaxerxes behind him. And he arrives in Jerusalem and the walls are in ruins and there's rubble everywhere and there's a big job to be done. Even from the very earliest moments that he arrives in Jerusalem there are significant signs of opposition. Chapter 2 and verse 10. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And then verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? That is the reality, isn't it? That is the reality that from the very dawn of creation, the strategy of the enemy has been to destroy and to damage all that God has made and his good purpose for this world. We know him as the accuser, the deceiver, the father of lies. Let me tell you this, this side of heaven, opposition is assured. I know you probably didn't want me to tell you that this morning. But this side of heaven, opposition is assured. If you turn with me to John chapter 15. Verse 18. Jesus says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. I mean, the sermon may get better, it may not, of course, but this is the reality, isn't it? This is the reality. We are in a battle, we are in a war. We follow Jesus, we're part of the kingdom of light. The opposite of that is the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the enemy. He doesn't want us in the kingdom of light, he doesn't want us to thrive, he doesn't want us to flourish, to live in the abundant life that Jesus has for us. 
Jesus says that the thief comes in order to steal and to kill and to destroy. Anything that comes under those three headings is the work of the enemy. We are in a war. We need to know that. In Nehemiah chapter 3, which Phil manfully read for us the other week, it was all looking good, wasn't it? Everyone seemed to be on side with the vision Everyone had their place in the wall. Everyone was working together. There was this sense of common purpose and a sense of expectancy. It was great. It was going to go well. It was going to be finished soon. And God's people were going to have their city back. And then what we find in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. By the way, you're not going to have four weeks on this. Only two. Is a series of setbacks coming one after another. Setbacks that threaten to derail the plan and purpose of God and the rebuilding of the walls. The first strategy that was used against the people of Israel was this, criticism. Criticism. Sambalat, governor of Samaria to the north, and Tobiah, governor of Ammon to the east. You know, if this was a pantomime, Every time they were mentioned, you would go. They got really fantastic at this at the 9.15. I think the sermon was probably twice as long. (laughs) Because that's what you feel like, isn't it? Every time you hear those names, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, (laughs) you know that something bad is about to happen. And they criticized the people of God. They used to little friends of criticism, ridicule and sarcasm. Ridicule, verses 1 and 2, and sarcasm, verse 3. Belittling the work, belittling the people, trying to demoralize them. And they threw out their questions. Criticisms disguised as questions. Questions designed to flatten them. These were not kind questions. These were destructive questions. Questions that picked on the vulnerable areas. Questions that tapped into their insecurities and exploited their anxiety. The first question they asked was this, what are those feeble Jews doing? Note that Sambalat was angry. (laughs) He was in the presence of his associates, so he brought his little minions with him and the army (laughs) of Samaria. This is pretty intimidating, isn't it, actually, if you're just there trying to build your wall. What are these feeble Jews doing? Now, this is a sensitive truth, isn't it? They already perceive themselves as inferior. They know they're weak. They know that building walls is not their strong point. They know all that. They know they're vulnerable. And it picks up on their weak points. And the enemy does that, doesn't he? We all have our vulnerabilities, don't we? We all have our, please don't say that, points. Please don't touch that area of my life. It's a bit sore. feels a bit raw. I feel a bit weak there. We all have those. And the enemy comes along and he jabs his finger into that sore bit on your body. Let's take that. He's clever like that, isn't he? And he does that to the Israelites. He knows they feel that way. And so he exploits that and he magnifies it 
and makes them feel worse than they do already. And we ask ourselves that, don't we? Who am I? Who am I to be doing this? I feel like every week. Who am I to be doing this? Who am I to stand on the stage at Spring Harvest? Who am I to lead this ministry to people in debt? Who am I to be a befriender? I'm a bit rubbish, really. Who, who am I to help in Sunday gang? Because well, my kids aren't perfect, are they? Who am I? Like, whatever the little thing is where you think I couldn't possibly, God might have a plan for you, but the enemy will jab you there and say, no, who are you? You're feeble. You can't do that. He says, will they restore the wall? He throws doubts on the wisdom of the project. He echoes their own fears. Sure, lots of us have things that we are invested in, we hope for. Ministries, ideas, activities, change in our workplace, stuff in our own lives. Something we feel that God has put on our heart. We want to see a difference there. And the little voice in our head says, can you really restore the wall? And the little fears we have echo in our heart. We think, I couldn't possibly do that. I can't do that. If you think that I don't look at that building next door and feel panicked on some occasions, <laughs> you don't know me very well. Can you really restore the house? Can you? Can you really start something that reaches out to homeless people? Can you really make a difference in the area of mental health in the town? Can you really? I mean, look at you. And it echoes our own fears. Will they offer sacrifices? You know, here he's ridiculing something of their faith in God because it's going to take the walls and then eventually when the walls are built they can offer sacrifices in the temple. They're never going to get to that stage. Your faith in God is worthless. We'll worship our gods but you're not going to worship your God anymore. Can prayer really make the walls grow? Is your faith worth it? Can you bring these stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? You know, fire robs stone of its strength, doesn't it? I think the word is calcine. It weakens it. And so they say, you're never going to build these walls with these stones, because these stones have no strength in them. But actually, we know that the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt with those stones. And the tests show us that the stones were not weakened by fire. Maybe some of them were. And the enemy does that, doesn't he? He takes something that's a bit accurate, or sort of could be, and something that's inaccurate, and he, he kind of mixes them together, and he throws them at you. And so you get confused. Is it truth or is it not truth? Is it lies? He's the father of lies. He plans to lie to you. And he works. And this criticism, this ridicule, this mocking, this sarcasm, gets inside us, doesn't it? Nehemiah's response, we should hardly be surprised, really. His prayer, I mean, it, it's always the answer, isn't it, with Nehemiah? What was Nehemiah's response? Prayer. He prays. 
He calls out to God in the face of every difficulty. And they love this because it's almost mid-insult, isn't it? Tobiah, what the, <laughs> thank you, somebody's still awake. What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Here are so gods. You don't get a, and then Nehemiah sat back and reflected for a while and thought that maybe he should pray. He's straight in there. Hear us, God. You know, when criticism comes and mocking and sarcasm and the lies of the enemy and his accusations, the first thing we should do straight away, hear us, O God. Shouldn't we? Hear us, O God. And I love it because it's honest prayer, isn't it? Hear us, O God, because we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. I might keep that one. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt. Don't blot out their sins. They've insulted us. Are we allowed to pray like that? You don't sound very certain. <laughs> it seems, doesn't it, that it's something of an expression in prayer of all the words of the covenant that we find in Deuteronomy and around that kind of area, which says that if people... There's one of those verses on the wall behind me. If people humble themselves, if they submit to God, if they obey God, then blessing follows. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that everything in life is hunky-dory and bed of roses. I wish I could say that, but it wouldn't be true. It's the blessing of knowing we are following Jesus, being obedient to him in his presence, with his strength, with us, in all things, whatever occurs. That kind of blessing but also in the law, it says that if people are disobedient, they don't submit to God, they go their own way, they don't follow him, then there is curse, as in life works out without God and his presence and his blessing. So Nehemiah is praying what is already written in the scriptures with regard to these enemies of God, that their sins won't be forgiven and that they won't be blotted out and that they'll, be, they'll reap the rewards of their disobedience to God. So that's why he prays it and how he prays it. So it's honest prayer, but it's also hard work. They pray with all their, uh, sorry, they pray and they work with all their heart, with all their heart. They shove their energy that could be turned against Samballot and Tobiah and all the other guys. They put that energy into rebuilding the wall. They don't stand and fight back. They don't speak back. They don't argue they pray and they rebuild the wall to half its height. Now, I want to just say something here because it's easy to imagine that it's everybody else that criticizes. Everybody else who mocks or is sarcastic. But actually, it's a very easy thing for all of us to be involved in, isn't it? Please put your hand up if you've never criticized anybody or anything. See? <laughs> See, sometimes it can be against us, but sometimes we can actually be the enemy in this situation. We can be the ones who criticize. We can be the ones who mock. We can be those who ridicule something that God is at work with. And that might be in somebody's personal life. It might be something that we're doing together as a church. It might be something that is beyond us as a church, because there is quite a lot that's beyond us as a church. And instead of saying, that's amazing, 
God bless that, let's work with it. We criticize. So we need to ask ourselves that, don't we? What am I doing? What is my responsibility in this? What is my role in this? Which side of the battle am I on? Criticism. And then the next threat, sorry, the next challenge was threats. Verses 7 and 8, when the enemy saw that they wouldn't give up in the face of ridicule and criticism, they took a new tactic. They resorted to plots and rumors of forthcoming attacks. They began to breed a climate of fear and discouragement. And the culture, the atmosphere is really important, isn't it? If you get a culture of fear and discouragement, we can't do this, we're afraid, we're never going to. Then everything starts being driven by that. This is where they were. The men of Ashdod were to the west in the red bit. The Samaritans and Sambalat were in the north, in the bit that says Kingdom of Israel. <laughs> Tobias and the Ammonites were to the east in the orange bit. And the Arabs and Edenites with Geshem were in the south, the yellow and the purple bits. So it doesn't take much intelligence to realize that they were surrounded, does it? They were surrounded by the enemies. They had reason to be afraid of physical threat. The mutual enemies had become mutual friends in their determined effort to overthrow God's work and God's people. Sometimes there are threats made against us. Sometimes we feel physically challenged. If we lived in a different place today, we would feel threatened, threatened for our worship service together, threatened for our lives, threatened for our families, and whether we would have a job or our kids would go to school, that kind of physical threat, the enemy is still using the same tactics that he ever used against the people of God. And yet again, Nehemiah's response is prayer. He prayed and he posted a guard day and night. He is not intimidated he is prayerful and practical, and we always need those two things to go together. Prayer and practical. I think we can manage that. Rumors of criticism, physical threats, rumors of attacks, and they face their third and potentially most destructive enemy of all. Weariness and discouragement. You know, this is the one that gets in our bones, isn't it? I'm just tired. I'm just not sure if I want to do this anymore. Just not kind of sure if it's worth it. Just tired. Just weary. It's been too hard. It's been so hard for so long. Perhaps maybe God's not in it, actually. Perhaps I should give up. Perhaps we shouldn't do anything new because, you know, everyone's tired, aren't they? And we tried that and didn't go very well, so we feel a bit discouraged. This is the one, isn't it? This is the one that gets in our bones. And the people started to say, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we cannot build the wall. And actually in the Hebrew, this has got a poetic pattern to it that sounds almost like one of the spirituals that the slaves used to sing. So the question is then, is it as negative as it sounds? Or are they just saying what's the truth, but singing it to try and stir themselves up to move forward? I don't know. But they were saying these things. 
hard work keeping going, isn't it? It's hard work when there's lots of rubble. A number of us have had building work in our houses. It's hard work <laughs> when there's lots of rubble. And there was lots of rubble. The threat from the enemies was continuing all the time. And interestingly, it's those who live nearest to the enemy who are beginning to believe them. There's something really important about that. You know, you cannot hear constant negativity without it rubbing off on you. It's just impossible, however optimistic and bright you are. <laughs> if you are constantly with people who are being critical and discouraging and negative, you will start to feel like that too. The ones who live closest to the enemy started to believe them. And if you're prone to discouragement, and let me give you a word of advice, don't spend too much time with negative and discouraging people. <laughs> Simple. Find some more positive people. Be with them. <laughs> I know it's not always that easy. But if we are constantly with those who are negative and discouraging, we will become like that. It's so difficult not to. The people lost strength. It's the implication, isn't it, of living in a pile of rubble. They were constantly falling over, staggering and stumbling around, trying to carry all the stuff to rebuild the walls, trying to keep going. They were tired physically, but emotionally they were tired too. Verse 6 says they reached halfway. Halfway is such a difficult place. Because you feel really, really positive that you've got to halfway. And then you think, oh my word, if it takes that much effort to get to halfway, how am I ever going to get the rest of the way? And emotionally it was hard. The 9.15, Sheila Pepper was here. She's running the York Marathon next week. It's the first one she's ever run. It's really, really impressive if you know Sheila. It's brilliant. But you know what? Halfway is the worst possible place, trust me. I was really good at getting to halfway, really good. At halfway, it all just fell apart. It took me nearly twice as long to do the second half as it did to do the first half. The Chester Marathon at halfway decided to go to the toilet. There were actual toilets, in case anyone's worried. I'd run my fastest half marathon time ever. So I thought, oh, take a break, go to the toilet. Came out of the toilet. My legs were like wet spaghetti. They were just like, whoa. I was like, how am I ever going to do the rest? And this is what these people felt like halfway. You know what Martin was showing us on the PowerPoint last week about the blocks along the bottom, and then there was the next layer. Actually, we got over halfway, so that was quite encouraging to me. Um, Get into halfway, and then the next bit's hard. They lost strength. They also lost their vision. They took their eyes off the wall, and they started to look at the rubble and the enemies. They took their eyes off the wall. Too much clear up, not enough progress made. We're going to be attacked. What's it all for? You know, we've got to keep our eyes on the vision, whether it's in our own lives some work that God is doing on our characters in us. So easy to get part way and then go, it's just enough. Too much rubble, too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. Something that God is calling us to, whether it's in our workplace or something within the church, 
get part way. That's too hard, too much rubble, too much threat. Don't want to do this anymore. And whether it's for us as a church and the things that God has called us to, we need to keep our eyes on the vision. That's why we spent a whole Sunday doing it last week. They lost confidence. They were weary, perhaps a bit disillusioned. They lost heart and motivation. They started to say, we can't do it, instead of, we can do it. As soon as we start to hear ourselves, we can't do it. We need to listen up. And they start to lose security, both personally and in their families. They are becoming overwhelmed by the circumstance. Now listen. All this has happened, and the enemy has not fired a single shot. No one is dead. No one has even been attacked. Nothing has happened. Just criticism and threats and weariness and discouragement of keeping going. But nothing has happened beyond that. But they are at a point where they are willing to put down their tools and give up. The enemy has almost won. He has not even started. He's not done anything. He's clever like that. He's sneaky. He challenges. He... It's a war of attrition, isn't it? It's more like guerrilla warfare than out-and-out battle. Before we know it, we've put down something before we've even picked it up. We've stopped even before we've started. And Nehemiah realizes that it's time to do something really significant. And so he makes strategic preparations to protect the people. First of all, he plugs the gaps at the lowest point in the wall, at the exposed places. It's never going to be a once-for-all thing because the things are change all the time, the exposed places or the low places. But he goes around and he looks at the wall and he says, okay, these places are low. This, this bit's exposed. We need to do something here to strengthen this bit. And we always need to be aware of that, don't we? In our church, we need to ask the question, and we do ask the question, where are the weak places? Where do we need to put in more energy and effort to make a difference here? What, what is looking vulnerable at the moment because things change. It may be that something that was really strong in the church loses four volunteers at once. At that point, that becomes a weak place in the wall, doesn't it? But we need to take notice and plug the gaps. We've been saying we haven't done enough prayer recently. We noticed it was a weak place in the wall. So we've done something about that to move forward. We are always trying to be aware of those weak places. But also in our own lives... What is the weak place? What is the exposed place in your lives? Where is your vulnerability to the enemy's strategy? Are you doing anything about it or has it become like a door? It's so low, the wall there. Are you bothered? Is it something in your family? Is it in your work? Is it a matter of integrity? Is it an illness or something where you just sense this is a low place? I need to, I need to do something here to rebuild the wall because it's a place where the enemy can get in to my life. He got them to fight in families. 
with swords, spears and bows, armed families. You know, family is a much broader concept than it appears to us. This is not talking about mum, dad and 2.4 children. This is, this is the extended family grouping that came, that built up the tribes. This is the extended families. He put them together because we do this together. We don't fill a low place on our own. We do it together as family groupings together. And I want to say something to you that I said at the 9.15 this morning. Because it's a challenge. It's a challenge to me, not just to you. In a church like ours, where we have an amazing children's minister and an amazing youth minister, it is easy for us, if we want to, to outsource the care for our children and young people. Now, I, I do this, all right? I have spoken to Matt. I have told him that he is entirely responsible for our children and that the way they turn out will be entirely his responsibility. <laughs> so at least, you know, if you're going to do it, be honest. That's my... <laughs> but you know what? That can be the truth, can't it? can be the truth, that we have outsourced the care for our own children to other people, to professionals. But it can also be the case that for those of us who are gathered more in this room than that one, that we outsource because, well, other keen people will do it. Other enthusiastic people will do it. Younger people will do it. And we outsource it in that sense. But actually, we are a family together where all of us are responsible for all of us. Where the children are not just the responsibility of their parents and the children's volunteers, but all of us. The young people are not the responsibility of Matt and the youth volunteers, but all of us. We all have a responsibility for all of them. And genuinely, it was beautiful hearing the lads singing this morning. We stand together as a family. Can you be a mentor? Can you be an older example? Can you go and help in Sunday gang or a youth or messy hands or whatever? Can you be there? Because this is us together, isn't it? And who knows what God might yet still call you to that you are not thinking he's going to call you to. He put them in families because families are a strong unit. They needed to get God's perspective. Nehemiah says this, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And we so easily lose perspective. I so easily lose perspective. Of God who is great and awesome. God who is for us. God who is fighting with us. We need to get perspective. When the enemies heard that God was involved, they gave up their plots. How easy was that? Because the enemy's not really very brave. He just puts a show of bravery on. It's a bit like the Wizard of Oz, you know. Is that a right theological thing to say? <laughs> it's like a little person with a big, big voice. <laughs> they balanced their work and their warfare. Half of them worked. Half of them were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers were behind the people as they worked. Every person had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other one. They worked and they fought. They got the balance right. We are trying to do that better. Not just doing all the work stuff, but making sure that we pray more, 
Pray more intensely. Pray better. Pray more earnestly. Working together to get those two things together, work and warfare. They had emergency planning. Nehemiah realized that they were really spread out. And so he had one man who, with a shofar, the trumpet, who stayed with him. And if it was a really bad day, if something happened, if the enemies came, he said, we're going to blow the trumpet and all of you come running to the same place and we'll all fight together. This is our emergency strategy. God will fight and we will fight together. In the past, sorry, I am going to mention this. In the past, we have occasionally had emergencies. And we've called you all to pray and to fast. There you go, I said it out loud, sorry. To take emergency action. We knew that it was a key moment. Key opposition or key moment going forward, both. And we've called you. We've sounded the shofar. And we've said, come on, together we are going to do this for this moment. So are you ready for that? When we call, when we sound the trumpet and say, can we do this? Can we pray? Can we fast? Can we get behind this right now? There's an emergency. Will you do that with us? Will you be ready to respond to that? And they always stayed alert. We continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. You know, the work day was dawn till dusk. But they worked harder. They stayed alert longer till the stars were shining in the sky. They were always alert. And we need to be also. We can't go off our guard. We can't sleep. We can literally. <laughs> we need to be alert to what God is doing and to the things that come against us. And they were together for this time. Nehemiah said, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Not everyone lived in Jerusalem, basically in ruins. They lived in the villages around. Nehemiah said, Can we all be here? Can we all be in this together? Can we all give everything that we have to this? rebuilding of the walls, the restoring of our identity as the people of God. We're all in this together. And you know what? The warfare continued. The opposition continued, and Phil will be speaking about that more next week. But God was with them. We are in this battle together, aren't we? Sometimes I feel like I'm really blinkered, and sometimes I feel like my eyes are wide open to the things that the enemy is doing. We need to be more alert, more aware, more working and praying together for the purposes of God's kingdom. During this last week, somebody emailed us, and uh, as part of their email, they said, I was reading this verse, and it really struck me with the things that you had been sharing. And so I thought that I would share it with you this morning. It's from 1 Chronicles, and it says this, Be strong and courageous and act. So not, not just be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear or be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Amen.